So those who follow me on this podcast know that I'm both a Twitter whore and an intense um, non-fan of Elon Musk, Twitter's nutjob new owner. And I've been asked a lot, what are you going to do? What are your Twitter plans now? And initially, I was all, fuck this place. I'm out. See ya. But then, I don't know. I looked at my following. I looked at all the Twitter's done to help my career from PR to people finding to podcast guest ideas. I mean, fuck, I found today's guest via Twitter. So honestly, I can stand here today leaning into my microphone and say sincerely, I have no remote idea. I'm just waiting to see how this all plays out. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of Two Writers, Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is Doug Ellen, the podcaster, screenwriter, and film and TV director, known best for creating the HBO television series Entourage, as well as his upcoming show, Ramble On. This is episode number 284. Let's sling some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks, and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. All right. Well, uh, <laughs> Doug, so we, this is kind of interesting. I've never done this before. I'm in your studio. Connolly's. Connolly's studio yeah. in LA. I just did your podcast. Mm-hmm. Now you're doing my podcast. Yep. My podcast is, is much more about the intricacies of writing okay. and the hells of writing. I'm not sure I know. I know about the hells. I don't know about the intricacies. Yeah. Well, you I'll know. I'll try. And um, we actually, on your podcast, discussed this a little bit because I was telling you, I had a discussion with Max Bornstein, who's the showrunner and writer for uh, Winning Time about what's harder, writing a book or writing a TV series yeah. or a film or a script, whatever. Yeah. And you were very adamant that writing a book is harder. Yeah. I don't know if I agree with that, but what makes you say that? Well, I guess, first of all, obviously, everybody's different. And me, like right now, I'm writing outlines for a script. It's so much harder for me, one, because I'm, I'm half illiterate. So even though I'm a college graduate, my grammar's horrible. So I go through these lines, which are like action lines, which are pretty irrelevant in a screenplay for the most part, especially the type of stuff I write, which is dialogue heavy. Um, so I spend so much time trying to make my action lines sound good. And in a book, you know, you want to paint a picture with your action lines, which is not as necessary in a screenplay. You want to paint a picture with your words and make sure your characters actually come to life with the words that they're saying, you know? And obviously you're going to set them in a setting, but you get all these benefits that you don't get in a book. You have a location, you have a great cinematographer, you have all the lighting, all of that stuff. So I find the tediousness of trying to come up with um, what some people might find very easy, but just writing simple action lines and setting, you know, when you're writing, when you're writing the Lakers book, just setting up what the, the, um, the forum might've felt like in 1975 is different than writing what magic might say, which for me is just far easier. Okay. But here's why I think what you do is harder to a certain degree. Like um, I mentioned to you, I've been working on a screenplay with a friend of mine, John Wertheim, and we're tripped up over, over a lot of things. It's our first time doing it. And one of the things is like, we'll write something like, uh, whatever, Smith enters the room, he is unhappy, or he, he's whatever. And we have the guy we're working with, he's like, no, you can't, you can't just say he's unhappy because you have to show he's, how is he showing he's unhappy? How yeah. is he? And it seems like you have to be very meticulous in sort of, you can't just assume. That the audience knows. Yes. Yeah. Well, for, for me, again, the, there's two things in a screenplay story and words, plot. I'm a very character-driven writer, for good or for bad. Um, and once I know my characters, you just have to tell me what situation they're in, and it's very easy for me to write what they say and to express what mood they're in or, or where they're coming from. The hard part for me is story. So Obviously, that's part of a screenplay, a huge part of a screenplay. But the words that come out of someone's mouth once I know who they are. If you tell me this guy is unhappy, if I know who he is and I know why he's unhappy, 
it's very easy for me to start writing scenes that can express that in ways that aren't obvious because, you know, that's the thing that you want to hide in screenplays, exposition. You don't want a person to walk in the room and go, how you doing? I'm really unhappy, you know, but you want to show that. And that's, that's probably my best skill is, is bringing someone into a room and, and letting you know how they're feeling or what's going on. But the hardest thing that I struggle with, which is, you know, imperative in a book is what the plot is because, you know, um, dialogue obviously can be great in books also, but to me, the great books that I've loved that I go, Oh, I could never do that in a million years. It's, it's just the descriptions that are so, you know, when, when I really get into a book that can paint a picture with words for me, I more rely on, I'm going to put you in, uh, you'll be at the forum. You know, if you're writing winning time, when we shoot the show, you'll be at the forum, the crowd will be there, and I don't need to describe all that. You know, I can just write something as simple as packed forum, and you're done, you know? I always wonder this about you, like, because I've known a lot of people in this situation. In fact, I've had this situation. Like, you have an enormous, enormous show, enormous show. And when most people know Doug Ellen, they know entourage, entourage, entourage. Can that haunt a writer? Meaning, if you're known for one thing, number one, do people expect you're going to write that again? And number two, like, do people just assume that is who you are, that is your lane, and we're never going to give him a shot doing anything but that very hyper-specific subject matter? Yeah, you know, I, you know, I've had a different type of career that wasn't, for whatever reason, wasn't so prolifically going forward, and I want to do this, and I want to do that. I actually wanted to produce more after entourage than write necessarily. And some of the first things I did, which now in 2022 would even be more challenging for me, but like the first thing I sold after entourage was a Harriet Tubman movie. I was never going to write it. It was something that was important to me. I had a daughter who was at that school age that I thought, I want her to see something I do in school. I want them to teach it. I got Viola Davis attached to it. And I wasn't going to do anything except for what I just said. I found a book. I found the best actor on the planet to play that part. And I convinced her to do it. And then I took it to a, a, a writer, Kirk Ellis, who won an Emmy for writing um, John Adams, I think he wrote. And all of a sudden it was on Variety. Like basically, it may, maybe it wasn't Variety. One of the things was like, how, how dare Doug Ellen go near Harriet Tubman or something. So and that killed it? No, it killed me. So basically the, the movie that became... The Harry Tubman movie. Nothing to do with me, but do I think I might have had something to do with moving that forward? Sure, because no one was really talking about it at the time, and Harry Tubman's story seems so known now, but actually, uh, I forget if it was Russell Simmons or s someone did some type of sketch on the internet that about Harry Tubman after we had sold that, uh, that show, and all of a sudden it became very relevant. And then they talked about putting her on the $2 bill and all of this stuff. But yeah, I think I, I kind of had it early and there were a couple of shows also. I mean, I wanted to do the show, the brick with Mike Tyson. Again, I wasn't going to write it, but it was kind of the stuff that I grew up like wanting to see. And, uh, I got John Ridley probably two years before he won an Oscar for 12 years a slave. I got Spike Lee to direct it again. I was not I was only going to give my thoughts on on helping as much as I could bring the right elements in. John Boyega was my idea. I saw him in that um, sci-fi movie long before Star Wars. Um, so those were the type of things that that kind of interest me. The the when the Garden was Eden was the doc I did thirty for thirty on the Knicks mm -hmm. sixty nine to seventy two Knicks. Um, so yeah, a lot of people are like, "What is this? And why why aren't you writing like some young guy show where they talk about chasing women?" Which as you also know, became something that was really out of favor as well. Yeah. Um, but I haven't taken a lot of stock in what hurt me or what lane people put me in because I just haven't done as much as maybe people think I should have or as much as I wanted to because uh, as we talked about on my podcast, the writing process for me is often – I don't want to say it's difficult for everybody, but it's kind of life uh, draining for me in a way that I don't – love the way I am or the way I feel. So a lot of times I try not to do it. That's why I did try to produce because I thought I could find some other writer that could go through all of that hell and, right. and I could kind of give my overall thoughts on it. But now I'm back right in it because I'm, I'm doing this new show that sort of like Entourage and Entourage, I was never an Entourage guy and I was never even like a big going out party guy, but I was always, all my friends kind of lived that life and I was always an observant type of person. So I had seen all of it. And the, and the new show I'm doing is very relatable to my life. 
Um, but it still is that challenge of waking up every day and going, how do I find ways to enjoy the process of, of writing? So first of all, the show is called Ramble On. Yeah. And there was a pilot episode um, that you were shopping now. Yeah. You told me that tonight when you're done, you're going to write all night. Yeah. That is not normal for me, by the way. What does that actually look like? What does writing all night mean for you? Where you know are you when you do It doesn't this? mean anything like what it means for you. And I'm serious because I... I've always been a very ADD guy. My mother used to literally put me in my room. <laughs> I didn't have TV in my room when I was a kid. That would, you know, if my mother saw that my children had TVs in their room, she'd lose her mind. But I had a strict schedule of how much TV I was allowed to watch. And my mother and my father were very big on education, which it just didn't work for me. And back then, people didn't know what ADD was. You know, you were just told you were lazy, you were this. And nothing's really changed. So writing for me is often... You know, my, my office space at my house is probably the same size as this. Writing is usually spinning around in, you know, walking around. I probably do 10 miles in that little room. Um, before Are you talking I, to yourself? I don't even think about the work. I avoid it for as long as I possibly can. And when I get a spurt, I've written scripts in two hours and wasted 400 you know, and where I'm not even thinking about it. So it's not like that's part of my process, which a lot of people think it is. The The best things that happened to me yesterday was a perfect day. I sat in that room for eight hours. I turned sports on. I turned this on. I turned that on. I avoided everything. And then at about four o'clock, I did one of my, which, you know, it's been on Entourage where, you know, and actually I, I feel like Quentin got it from Entourage because Leo did the same exact thing in, uh, in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But Dylan drama in Entourage was like, looked in the mirror is like, get it together, you fucking motherfucker, whatever he says to himself. The amount of times that I've done that, because I know I can do it, and I don't believe in writer's block. I believe in in distraction, which I think a lot of people now know. It's an insecurity. You, you, you don't want to sit down, and especially when you are as hard on yourself as a lot of writers are, oftentimes I'll sit down and I'm typing and I'm like, God, how can you suck this badly? And then I'll read it the next day and go, fuck, this is pretty good. What's the matter with you? And I'll go through the same stupid cycle over and over. So yesterday's writing was eight hours in my office doing nothing, 15 minutes of getting in the mirror and going, are you fucking stupid? Do it. And then one hour of doing more than I did the entire day and being very happy with it. So today I had three podcasts, this one included, and uh, I've done absolutely nothing, but I got to get ready to present what this is next week. And uh, so I will hopefully, because I've always been a big believer, three hours of really solid work is amazing. Mm -hmm. Like if you can really get that done and turn all your shit off and get your phones off and do that. So I just need, I just need a couple of hours of of good stuff. What are you writing tonight? So I'm not really specifically writing. I'm just getting ready to present, which is why I say like a book, I'm getting ready to present the pitch of this show, which I already know what it is, but I have to know what I'm going to say because, uh, We've done something that almost nobody does. We went out and made a pilot, um, financed it ourselves, and now we go out, and everybody who's seen it so far really loves it, but I've got to convince them to go, okay, now give us 40 or $50 million to go make the rest of this, when it wasn't even something that they were invested in from the beginning. So like Winning Time, your show, HBO read the book, and they heard someone say, let's get involved in this. They ordered a script, they paid for it, and they were already invested. Now we're walking into something that they have no idea what it is, um, no personal stake in it, and we got to say, hey, look at this. Hopefully they get involved, and then they want to finance the rest of it. All right, so I'm fascinated by a lot of things. So I have been dazzled by the bullshit of Hollywood, dazzled. Everything with Winning Time has been amazing. But I, my first book, the, the Bad Guys Won, about the 86 Mets, was optioned. Um, by a guy, and he took me to the Soho house. Mm-hmm. And while we were at the Soho house, this was a recently divorced guy, he pulls out his phone and he starts scrolling through pictures of women that he took, either naked or half naked, going, I fucked her, I fucked her, I fucked her, mm-hmm. I fucked her. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? Like this, and you mentioned like you, you have a pilot and everyone who's seen it uh, loves it. And I wonder in this world, can you even believe people? I'm not saying it's not lovable. No, no, I get it. When people are like, oh, that was great. That was great. That was great. Never believe them, except for when they act. If there's no action behind it, there's nothing. Right. So, you know, why I say it, like the people I'm meeting with Tuesday, you don't get calls on a Saturday in Hollywood, you know? So I had sent it to this this big executive at a production company, one of the few people who's seen it. He called me Saturday morning and said, let's meet now. So- 
that's when you know who somebody is. I've had plenty of I love it's I love it. And obviously Entourage, in my opinion, is kind of the definitive show of the bullshit of, of what mm-hmm. Hollywood is. So I'm, I'm well aware and everything is about action. Like you can you can listen to all the nonsense you want, but if someone doesn't write a check, put you in the next room with somebody who can write a check, then there's really no value to it, you know? Yeah. Wait, when you, um, so I look back at stuff I wrote three, four, five, six, seven years ago, sometimes two weeks ago, and I think, well, that fucking sucks. Like, that that wasn't good. What was I thinking there? Entourage, you know, started 20 freaking years ago. Do you look back at anything you wrote then? Do you ever look back at episodes, think about episodes, and think, man, I kind of sucked. I didn't know what I was doing. Or are you just like, this is the greatest thing ever? There's, pl- I'll, I'll say two things without being arrogant. There are episodes I watch that I go, I, I can't believe how good this is. I'm, I'm stunned I was even involved in this. Then there are episodes where I'm like, God, this is this is some weak writing. But I know what goes on on a TV show, especially when you have a, a small group. You are grinding and grinding and grinding, and to come up with stories every week is extremely difficult. And it's not necessarily the grinding that does it. The the episode that I was nominated for an Emmy for, which I do think is fabulous, and and I can look back on it like I had no involvement with it whatsoever. That took me a couple of hours. And there are episodes, was that the Median episode? This was this was actually. Um, Season two, Ari gets fired. He tries to, you know, go behind his back, and 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 he gets fired. So oh, yeah, it was right. called Exodus, and uh, there are episodes that I spent three, four months on that I look at, and they're horrible. So there's no necessarily uh, the work doesn't always mean success. And you know, I've listened to songwriters, whether it's Stevie Nicks or the Eagles, who write songs in forty five seconds that last for uh, fifty years. Um, so sometimes inspiration comes to you and sometimes you got to grind it out. There are some episodes that I watch that I go, uh, yeah, I remember how difficult this one was and I'm glad we kept pushing and pushing and pushing, but there are some, of course I watch some filler episodes and I watch casting mistakes or I watch shot mistakes that I wish I, I did differently. So sure. But I, um, a couple of years ago, I read an interview with Eminem and I'm a, I'm a big Eminem fan, a big hip hop guy and he shit all over an album he released and it was an album I really liked. And he shit all over it. He was like, this album sucks. I yeah. should never should have released it. And I actually felt a little wounded and stupid. Like, oh, I really like that album. I guess I don't know what I'm talking about. Is it okay for for people, for us? I, I wrote, like I've said openly a million times, my Clemens book. It's just not worth reading. It's not a good book. And I've had people say to me, wait, I really like that book. Is it okay for you to be like, yeah, episode, season three, episode two, that episode, not that good? Or do you feel like you're letting people down if you get that specific? You know what? I, I don't... Worry too often about what anybody else thinks. I, I can tell from your podcast. <laughs> I, I, I do, though, not to be arrogant. I just try to express what I'm feeling or what I'm thinking at, at whatever it is. And I think Stuart Rosenberg was my teacher at, at the American Film Institute. He directed Cool Hand Luke. And um, he used to say, you don't travel with your film. Like, you don't get to explain it. You don't get to do anything. And it's no longer yours when it's done. And when you put it out there, it's irrelevant what I think or what I don't think. I could argue all day, oh, you don't get this or... Well, this is why I hate it. It doesn't matter. And with art, you know, and I don't want to get like obnoxious, like I'm an artist or something, but that's, it is what it is. And how it moves people is how it moves people. It's like with a great song. Sometimes I've listened to artists who tell me they don't like a certain song that I've loved for 25 years. It really doesn't make a difference what they think about it. It matters how it affected my life at the time that I listened to it, you know? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, well, you come out of Tulane, 1990? 90. They had a really good quarterback at Tulane back then. Talk about- who, Sean King? Who are you talking about? No, Tulane. Wait, but when you were there, they had a Heisman Trophy candidate as a quarterback. I can't remember his name, but I'll look it up and you'll be like, oh yeah. Um, I'm losing it because, you know, what I remember about being there, and actually I do a little segment with Sean King who, who, you know, uh, on, I I can't, honestly, I'm embarrassed to say, I don't even know what it is. Every Tuesday I talk gambling with Sean King on something he's doing in Vegas, who's awesome. We did not have a good team when I was there. We lost our basketball team because of my brother's fraternity. John Williams, right? What? John Williams, and that was my brother's fraternity, A.E. Pi, the biggest point. I, I don't know why there's not a story about that. That was the biggest point-shaving scandal, I think. You know, I mean, I just saw the one on uh, on uh, Arizona State that was oh, yeah. pretty amazing on Netflix. And obviously, what was it, City College and BC had one. But um, we did, I, I don't remember anything good about our football team while I was there. So I'm, It was a Heisman Trophy winning quarter. Not winning, but candidate early in the year. I'll look it up. Okay. Um, you're at Tulane. You know you want to be. You know you want to go in this business. No, I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, you know, again, same thing. I didn't have my mother there to lock me in my dorm room and tell me I got to work. But I barely made it through school. 
Um, You're from New York, I should say. I'm from, from New York. Island. Mean Streets of Long Island. Mean Streets of Long Island. Right. And uh, I went to Tulane. I had no idea what I was doing with my life. And uh, I was on my way to law school, which I don't think I would have made it through. I was barely making it through Tulane. That's because you have Jewish parents like me. My mom was always like, you need to go to law school. I'm going to be a writer. You law know, school. I don't even know if my parents were pushing me in that direction. I just had no direction. And I just loved movies and I loved TV, but from Merrick, Long Island, and not to sound like it was, you know, it was a very nice place. I loved my childhood. Nobody, I didn't know a single person in the entertainment business at all. It right. wasn't even a weird dream, and Tulane had no program set up for it. So um, what happened was, for whatever reason, I decided to write a screenplay my last two weeks at Tulane. I don't have- What was your major at Tulane? English, which okay. is, you know- it's it's like the uh, lazy man's major. It's in like my majoring opinion. in water. Exactly. Right. It really is. And that's right. why, you know, I don't want to get political because I know we're, we might be on different sides of this, but like giving away free college tuition, like nobody should have paid for my college tuition. My parents shouldn't have paid for my college tuition. That's how big of a waste of money it was. Right. But uh, I wrote a screenplay and I don't know. I felt like it had something. Um, what was it called? It was, it, it, it was untitled, <laughs> but I ended up selling it oh, crazy enough. Okay. It was the first thing I ever wrote. Um, I wrote it about some stories that happened at Tulane to me and, uh, I thought it was okay. And, uh, I went home and told my parents I wasn't going to law school. I was moving to Hollywood to do stand up comedy and wrote screenplays. How much stand up had you done at that point? Zero. Not a, never, Zero. never. I'm not even sure my parents thought I was funny at all. My mother cried like she, she, and it wasn't that classic Jewish parents like you want to be a doc. They just thought, which I, I think I might think the same thing if my kids said this today, they just thought I was completely lost and they had no idea what in the hell I was doing, you know? And, uh, especially after, you know, two years later when they came and saw me do stand up, which I swear to you is the only time I ever bombed was in front of my parents and everyone I know in Long Island. Cause I brought, probably 300 people to come see me do stand up uh, in, in New York city and took the whole place over and was on the marquee when I was still an amateur. And I went into a complete panic attack on the stage, walked off after one joke. And my father's best friend called me the next day. Like you're ruining your parents' life. What are you doing? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, they had no idea what I was doing. And when I made my first short film, my parents were shocked. They didn't know they, they didn't see any of this coming. So this is not the waiter. It was called the pitch, actually. Okay. So it was it was the pitch. Oh, the pitch. Here it is. Okay. I'm looking yep. at your IMDb. I'm not uh, yep. checking my text. That's yet. okay. Yep. You can check your text. Your show. I would not do that. But uh, I I did this little short film with David Schwimmer, pre friends, and Johnny Silverman, and Ernie Hudson. Okay, but wait, wait, wait. Yeah. Because I think this is important. Like, how does that even happen? Like, you're this guy. You graduate from Tulane. You don't want to do stand up. You bomb in front of your parents. You don't even know the Tulane quarterback. You decide I'm going to write. <laughs> I just threw that in. You decide you're going to write. You're going to write this. And how do you end up with these people in this thing you did? So I, I come out to LA. I've got this screenplay. I don't even know who to show it to. I don't know anybody. But I read about a couple of things. One, a stand-up comedy class. Two, UCLA extension class. Uh, screenwriting. So I don't, know how to, I don't know how to write a screenplay. I buy a couple of books. William Goldman's like Adventures in the Screen Trade yeah. and a couple other things. I don't even know if Robert McKee exists back then. But if he did, I bought it. And uh, I went to this UCLA extension class. And I... Got a temporary job. I was in the mailroom at New Line Cinema. I saw that, yeah. And I went to the extension class, and the teacher said, pitch me your screenplay. Everybody had to get up in front of the class and pitch a screenplay. They were so bad <laughs> that I said, I could do this, even though I don't know if any of these people went What was your success. pitch? I'm not even sure I had one, because okay. I think I was, I was observing. Okay. But I took this, and I said... Went back to New Line the next day. I, I was in the mailroom with a guy named Tommy O'Haver, who ultimately became a pretty successful director as well. And uh, I said, I'm going to go make a short film about stupid movie ideas, like people pitching really bad movie ideas. That was like my whole thought. He's like, I'll do that with you. And we sat down and we wrote this thing in like a couple of days. And I said, I'm going to freaking put it on my credit card. I'm going to go make this thing. Like, we're going to go do whatever. Um I did a stand-up show to raise money for this thing, handed out flyers to everyone at New Line, and Mike DeLuca, who was VP at the time, for whatever reason, decided to come to the show, and uh, he wrote a check for $10,000 to go do this short film, and I did the short film. I had a friend who played softball with David Schwimmer before Friends, and Johnny Silverman, who was in Weekend at Bernie's and a million other things, and he started giving them this script that we wrote, and everybody liked it, you know, so um, I, I made it. And um, 
it was, I, I don't know if you read this, but it was a pretty crazy story because I'm in Hollywood for probably six months and I make this little eight minute short film and um, start handing it out to people on VHS. I couldn't post it on Instagram. I couldn't do anything. And the next thing I know, I get a producer is making a movie called The Parent Trap. And they see my eight-minute short film. And they say, we want you to direct this $30 million movie called The Parent Trap. Which I think it ultimately became Jamie Lee Curtis and Kevin Lin- Pollack. Wasn't I, Lindsay Lohan in The Parent Lindsay Trap? Lindsay Lohan, all this stuff. Yeah. And it was at New Line Cinema. I had just, like quit being the mailroom guy at New Line Cinema, and I'm coming back into Mike DeLuca, who gave me $10,000 to make this short film, and I'm the director now attached to this movie with this producer. And I have never been on a film set in my life except the two days that I made this short film. And the short film, like I said before, was much more dialogue. It was, it was one camera sitting right here, and the characters just spoke to the camera. So when I walked into this meeting with, with uh, Mike and, you know, for real, everybody looking at me at this office going, this guy was handing out mail less than 12 weeks ago. He's now coming in to be the director of this movie. Oh, it's Don. No, Don. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Mike started asking me questions about directing movies, which knowing now what I know now, I could have lied and I could have bullshitted. I could have Fake said it till you make it. Fake it till you make it. And it was probably, I think, hopefully it worked out, but I was never that kind of guy. And I basically was just my idiot self going, uh, I don't know. He was like, how are you going to shoot this? I'm like, you know, it's going to be funny. It's going to be this. And, and Mike took me to lunch after and said, you're going to have a great career. I think you should go to film school. I think you should, you know, like take a moment to learn what the hell you're doing, get a skill, whatever. So I took that short film, which ultimately two weird things happened. But within weeks of, of all of that stuff happening, the movie, the player trailers started playing and I saw people pitching movies in this trailer, and I was like, oh, my God, people are going to think I stole, you know, whatever. Yeah. It's not the most original idea, but whatever. People are going to think I stole this from the, the player. And ultimately, Showtime saw my short and bought it and played it before the player on Showtime in 1991, 92. What was that like for you, seeing it on Showtime? Mind-boggling. And for my parents and for all my friends calling people up and, and going, turn on Showtime. Like they were showing short film. It was so, it was surreal, bizarre, amazing. And, um, but it didn't lead to a career. I used it to get into AFI and I went there for a year and, uh, came out of there, made a second short film that somebody saw and hired, really hired me to do a, a professional movie, which was a movie called Fat Beach huh. that was a $100,000 budget and, uh, you know, shot this movie in like six days, which was absolutely bizarre. And then a studio picked that up and it played all over the world. And Chris Rock used to make fun of it in his stand-up act. And You said everyone assumed you were black, right? Everyone did. I, I met with uh, Ice Cube about Friday. And when I got there, he was like, I thought, you know, you were going <laughs> right. to be black. I didn't we get, can have lunch. But. I didn't get that job. <laughs> but um, but yeah, so, uh, and that movie, like Complex Magazine did a, a retrospective, 25-year retrospective on it. I mean, it, it, it was pretty strange. But um, Could you have done The Parent Trap well, or would that have been a disaster? Here's what I'll say. Movies, David in the booth liked that question. Um, I'm here for David. That's what I'm here. I believe that I could have done it well because the most important thing, and to this day, um, and Harold Ramis, one of the great writer directors in the history of this business, who who read one of my scripts early on and was really kind to me and met with me and talked to me. He told me something that when I got on the set of Caddyshack, which you talked about on our podcast that you've never seen, which is the most ridiculous <laughs> thing I've ever heard in my life. He said, when I got on set of Caddyshack, I had no idea where to put the camera. And my cinematographer told me, walk on the set and just say, put the camera here and let everyone know you're in charge. And then the reality is, is Harold was the funniest person on the set or uh-huh. certainly in the top few. I think I've always had an innate ability to understand story. I think I know how to talk to actors and did. I don't think I learned that at school. I think the things that I could have have made that movie successful is hiring the right people because a movie is very different than um, a singer or songwriter. You have a lot of people. And if you can make sure you're surrounded, which I've tried to do my entire career, make sure I'm surrounded by people who are better than me at those other jobs that I could never do, cinematography, editing, et cetera, et cetera, and use my instincts. So I do think 
I do think I could have made that. I'm not saying I could have made it better than it was, whether it was good or not. I, I don't even remember it's a the fucking movie. Paratrap. It's yeah. a classic. You know what? I don't. I, I, I don't even remember. It's got it. Lohan. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember it at all. But but I do think I should have um, done what a lot of people do, which is bullshit. And um, I think directing. One of my regrets when I went to AFI is that I didn't take one of the real skill set programs. The directing program was the hardest to get into. That's the one where everybody kisses your ass and makes you feel like you're great. But the truth is the cinematographers and the editors, and the production designers, they learned real skills that, um, you know, um, could, you could use. So I, I do think I could have made it through that for sure. If I had the right people surrounding me, how important, this is going to sound weird, but what is the correlation in this, in your profession between great writers and success? I, th I think that this business is, you have to have a lot of luck. I don't care who you are. And there are certain writers that obviously, my scripts are not those. I mean, my scripts were usually not received well at all. And almost always, things that I wrote when people saw them afterwards would go, wow, that's so much better than what you thought. Even in AFI, AFI was a professional trade school. So I was like the youngest person there as far as I know. So a lot of these people were in the business and were coming here for whatever the reasons were. And one of the first short films I wrote, the producer on it was friends with a very big screenwriter, a guy who wrote the movie Consenting Adults. I'm blanking out his name. I mean, the guy was like a million-dollar screenwriter in 1992. He read my eight-minute short film that I wrote at AFI and wrote this entire diatribe to my producer on how awful this script was. And I read it as a 22-year-old. I was like, holy shit. And it, it rattled me, but I still kept going. And Was he right or wrong to write that? Is that an asshole thing to do or is that a constructive thing to do? Well, I, I think that there were ways he could have been more constructive <laughs> yeah. rather than just nasty. Yeah. But one, what happened was is after he saw the film, he wrote an apology, not to me, because I, I, he, he never even knew I was going to read this. He wrote it to his friend who was making this. He said, I, I read the tone all wrong. And Entourage, I have, I have the, the coverage from one of the agencies on the pilot of Entourage, which, you know, whatever anyone wants to look back and think now, the New York Times female writer called it the smartest show on television after, you know, we aired the first night the coverage that I got from my own agency, which they didn't know I was going to read, was this is one of the worst things they've ever read. And maybe if Michael Tolkien, who wrote the players, you can imagine how depressing that was after I had a short film that played before the player on Showtime. Yeah. Maybe if Michael Tolkien came in, there's a, a shred of something decent in this thing. So for whatever reason, and, and partly maybe what it is is what I was talking about earlier, writing action and write, and describing scenes is not my forte, and I see it crystal clear how people should say the words that I'm writing. I see every person that I write how I think they should say it. Now, that doesn't mean actors don't come in and interpret it better or worse or whatever it is, but I see it so clearly. And I think a lot of times with my scripts, people didn't read that. So I happen to have a, I, I happen to, you know, I mean, again, I was lucky enough to get Mike DeLuca to Give me that money for that short film. I was lucky enough that someone got me those actors. David Schwimmer, before Friends, I met him, and he came in and auditioned for me. In one second, I was like, holy shit, how lucky am I to get this guy? I knew before Friends this guy was going to be a giant comedy star. And those things were, were luck, you know? And I still think, obviously, I had this talent somewhere, but I think what I see with a lot of people in this town, you have to be out there, which I was never that guy. You have to network. And it's probably why I haven't made more things. But I think there are a lot of really great writers that are not necessarily have the personality to get out there in front of stuff that may, that will slide under the, under the cracks. Then there are people, the Aaron Sorkins of the world that are just so undeniably good that I think they'll be fine. But I think there's a lot of really talented people out there that, that don't have the luck or don't have that personality to drive through it. You know, are you not a Soho, Soho house hangout guy? You know what? I'm not, I'm not a network guy. My yeah. parents told me my whole life. And again, I don't want to make it like I'm some recluse, but I'll, 
because I'm a pretty popular person with a lot of friends, but all my friends have made fun of me since college that I'm just not, I'm not that guy. And I don't think anyone would have thought I'm the entourage guy who's going to write about nightlife in Hollywood and all that stuff, because I'm, I'm usually a guy, even in college, that was going home, you know, at 10 o'clock at night and going to sleep, you know, and not that I was studying. I just was, I don't know. I had things on my mind, I guess. I don't know. Before we continue with two writers slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. And I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who wants to tell you about dad. It's me, Emmett. Casey left for college. This this is Jeff Perlman with my, my daughter, Casey, and... Dad, seriously, Casey's gone. But I'm here, and I wear Royal Retros gear, too. Look, I'm wearing the Arizona Wranglers jersey you bought me. Number 11, Greg Landry. Let's play catch, Dad. No, you're Casey. Casey Perlman. You do these ads every week, right, Casey? Every week. These ads. Casey, so happy. Daddy-daughter day. Casey Pooh. Mom, can you call CVS and see if Dad's meds are in? I had um, on my podcast a while ago, Rodney Barnes is a writer on Winning Time. Really good guy, really smart writer. And I, he said to me, it never gets better than what he thinks of an idea in his head. He said, it's almost always downhill from there. Ugh. Do you do you feel that way as well? I mean, I- It kind of blew my mind when he said that. It's actually. the worst thing in the world. I write so much stuff in the shower in my head. Yeah. And I get out, and that's that's the thing. Again, it's, you know, someday they'll solve it because they'll, they'll you know, my therapist will tell me there's childhood traumas. I didn't feel heard. I didn't feel accepted. Whatever the fuck it is. The amount of things I write that I- can't believe how much better I thought it was going to be than what it actually was. It's so, it's debilitating. It serves no value to you, but it is who a lot of us are. And, uh, you know, I used to say this at AFI because I used to walk around with my short films and everybody like, how is it? I'd be like, oh, it fucking sucked. I, this happened, that one. And then there were these guys there walking around going, oh, it was so great. It was so, very few of those guys are actually good. You know, there are a couple who know how good they are, deliver how good they are. But most of the great, talented people I know have a lot of self-doubt. And, you know, it's not... It's so weird. Yeah. And it's not something that I, I wish upon anyone because I think the I, the best case scenario is, is you hone your craft, you get good at it, and you own it, and you know you're good. But the weird thing is, for a slow Jewish athlete, there's times on the basketball court where I don't play anymore because I always pickleball get hurt. Court. The pickleball court now where I think I'm... Whether I'm delusional or not, I feel the confidence to beat professional athletes that I play with, whether I'm whether I can or not, it doesn't matter. I feel so fucking confident and so comfortable and so, you know, even in this forum, by the way, I feel much more comfortable talking than I do sitting down and writing, sure. but I can't make any money talking. So do you um I find it offensive when writers talk about how great they are. Like it it bothers me because and I'm not, I'm not saying I'm great in any way, shape, or form, but I've had a sustained career. Like, you've had a su- sustained career. I work hard. I bust my ass. I think almost everything I write sucks. Mm. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I'm miserable. I see every wart, every yeah. mistake, everything. And when a young guy, especially a young guy, comes along and is like, yeah, I'm a great writer. Or, this is great. I just wrote something that's great. Yeah. It actually offends me. <laughs> you know what? It's so, it's so hard for me to, you know, I, I always used to hear, you know, what's his face? My, my brain is going so... F- uh, you got to stop playing pickleball. I, I got to stop playing pickleball, which is supposed to be good for dementia, by the way. But um, I'm completely blanking on his name. One of the great comedy writers of all time, Dave. Jumba. It's so embarrassing right now. Ferris Bueller and and planes, trains, and everything. That guy. And you know, I've met with executives who said, you know, Sixteen Candles. Uh, you know, he would write one draft and tell everybody, "This is it. Take it or leave it." Um, so there's Michael Jordans out there. John Hughes. Jesus. John Hughes. How embarrassing. So I'm, I'm I didn't have it in my head either. And I knew yeah, but John. I know, but you're not a guy who's obsessed over John Hughes for 40 years. So maybe there's something wrong with me, <laughs> but supposedly John Hughes was like, it's perfect. And the truth is it was, especially at the time, yeah. planes, trains and automobiles. Like it's perfect. Like, you know, I'm not going to sit there and go, Oh, you should change this. or You should change that. Michael Jordan is perfect. You know, like what, what are you going to say? If LeBron James goes, I'm great at basketball the fuck am I going to say? You're not. He is. Are there writers like that? Is Steven Spielberg that good? Should he know it? I, you know, maybe, but I guess I don't think you should ever need, feel the need to say it. You should let other people say that or not. And like I said before, without being arrogant, I do think I've written great stuff. Sure. Um, I never thought at the time it was necessarily great. And I never wake up in the morning thinking I'm going to write something great today, which is, it's more of the, the, the curse of whatever 
whatever that thing is, which I don't think it's healthy or not. I even, again, I think you're talking about two separate things. Just being arrogant is always obnoxious to me. Right. But I think. Which is funny because you work in Hollywood where you, you know. Well, I hate most people in Hollywood. That's never been a secret of mine. It's why I don't work more. And and it's why I try to surround myself with people that I do like. But I think that, that obviously being self-aware is important. And there are some people who are, are great every day and Stephen King and Aaron Sorkin and God bless them. But, um, I don't feel that way about myself. It's not, um, it's, it's just not something I want to express out there. Not for any other reason than it's just not how I feel. You know, does this, um, I wasn't going to ask you this, but I kind of feel this thing here. Like, um, when I'm writing my health anxiety comes out, like I always, what's that bump on my arm? What's this? So-and-so my, Every anxiety comes out. My, I have to pee a million times. I think this. I think that. I'm freaking angry and agitated and moody and upset and all of that stuff. And yeah. I always think it's like this Jewish thing in me or something. I don't yeah. even know. Same? Yeah. I mean, you know, there's two – listen, there's two – the comedy version of writer's struggle on Seinfeld, if you remember, they're doing the episode where George and Jerry are writing a pilot and Kramer walks in and bothers them. He's like, sorry, I didn't know you're working. They're like, no, no, come in. Because everybody wants that distraction. And the real tragic version of it is adaptation. You see Nicolas Cage, you know, the first seven minutes of that movie, I remember when I saw it, it literally, it A, gave me a panic attack and it B, made me go, how the fuck didn't you write this? This is your life every single day. And one of the things for a lot of writers and, and why, which I've been lucky, I've never been a drug guy or an alcohol guy, but the self-hatred that goes on in it and the reason it's so destructive to relationships and the reason it makes it hard to focus on your kids and your family is it, it for people who care, it becomes 24 seven. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the times why I haven't wanted to work more is because I know what happens to me. And once I get obsessed, and I can't solve a problem if I'm stuck in a story and I'm trying to figure out. And again, I'm not trying to say anything I've done is so great that it warrants being this obsessive about it, but that's what happens. And like, while people, I'm, while people are sitting at dinner, having a great fucking time, I'm sitting in my head and going, okay, how can you not solve this second act problem? Are you this fucking stupid that you can't sit down and just solve it? You've done it a hundred times. Why can't you do it? And everybody's like, Doug, what are you thinking about? And I'm going, what I'm thinking about is how much I hate my fucking life right now and how I don't want to answer to anybody asking me any fucking questions about anything except I want one thing, to solve this goddamn problem right now. And it for the real writers that I know, that often is the problem. But you know, when you look at someone, you're working with Adam McKay right now, the guy has been so prolific and he's done so much stuff. I can't imagine that's what he goes through because he would kill himself if he was doing it as often as he is. You yeah, know? I don't know. Um, do you have a, <laughs> every writer I know has this, maybe you don't, you're out for dinner. It's someone you don't know, whatever, blah, blah. And, uh, it's a spouse, right? It's a spouse. So what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a, I'm a hedge fund, blah, blah, blah. I work in hedge funds. Are you just like, I need to go home now? Like, do you want to talk to the guy for an hour about hedge funds? I don't, you know, not to, not to be an ass. I don't want to talk to anybody that often. I'm really not a, I, first of all, I hate small talk. Hey. And it's not that, um, I'm very interested in, in business. I'm very interested in hedge funds. Am I interested in listening to people tell me how much money they have? And it's not a jealousy thing. It's not anything. That's the last thing I want to sit and talk about. If I'm sitting at a table, the things that are going to interest me are movies, television, and sports and food. Like, I don't, I'm not interested. But do you want to have, wait, I'm interested in this. So, okay, if I go out, if we're going out to dinner and I don't know the guy, my wife will say, don't worry, he's not a sports fan. And that makes me very happy because I don't want to talk. Inevitably, they find out you're a sports writer. Oh, Tiger's pitching rotation. What do yeah. you think? And I'm like, I don't yeah. care. And then you come up. Do you actually want, if you're going out to dinner with some guy who is a hedge fund guy and he wants to talk to you about Ferris Bueller's day off, yeah. are you all in on that? Or are you like big no? It, it depends who they are. And look, you know, the hedge fund guys, whatever. We can say that the, the destruction of the universe or not. Yeah. But a lot of them are brilliant guys. I'm just using it as an example. No, no, I no, get right. it. But a lot of Wall Street guys, sure. you know, and a type A kind of world rulers, essentially. They were big Entourage fans. And they and a lot of them used to say, I don't watch a lot of TV. I watch Entourage and I watch SportsCenter. And that actually made me happy. But when I find intelligent people who can discuss movies and intelligently, I'm not interested in like uh, how hot was Sloan in real life. I'm not interested in garbage. Do people like ask that. you that crap? All, well, it's, 
it's not necessarily anymore, but right. oh yeah. I mean, you know, Emmanuel Shriki is, you know, dear friend and one of the great right. people I know. She was the Jewish goddess of every person in New York. So right. anyone I would meet, and especially because I do know a lot of hedge fund guys and the single ones would be like, I will fly her anywhere. I will do this. I will do. I'm like, that doesn't interest her either, right. you know, but <laughs> I like intelligent conversations about movies. I like intelligent people about travel and about this. But when people want to talk about how much money they made or, you know, what they're buying today, that's, that's not my thing. And, um, and when people get into conversations, like I said, about stupidity of Hollywood, that it just doesn't interest me. You know, my favorite thing by far, by far is chocolate writing with another writer. I love it. I do. I yeah. love it. I love talking about the struggle. I love talking about the tech. I just do. I'm well, I, I love talking to successful writers who've done it. And I do like to hear, even though I, I honestly, I don't believe you because you, you said on our podcast that you, you love driving eight hours to grab a yearbook because it's research. I, I couldn't, I would be angry the whole fucking time. No, you wouldn't because you're playing music, you're drinking your whatever. It's just like, I think you're a happier writer than me. And I'm not trying to, I'm a, I'm a happy this. researcher yeah. when it comes to writing. It's because I, yeah. I, I do a book over two years, let's say a year and a half of that is just research. So for a year and a half, you're like digging here, you're going here, you're flying here. It's great. But those six months of writing, it's probably the same with you. I should try to, you know what? You should be involved with this this project. So, you know, one of the worst things is you say how Are slow, you offering me a job? I, I don't have the job to offer, right. but- but I'm in. I, I've been, I mean, it's actually 30 years since this started. But 30 years ago, when I was a young, young writer, somebody asked me to write a book about the, a, I mean, a, a screenplay about the ABA. I was obsessed with the ABA when I was a kid. That's Did you read the, Loose Balls? No, of course. Yeah, yeah, great of course. Book. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, and the 30 for 30, and there was an HBO doc on it as, as well. So anyway, classic Hollywood story, you know, and the schmuck I am, I, I, I went and pitched this to MGM, got the job. I'm like 22, like calling my parents. I just got a job I'm writing the ABA story for uh, this, that, and um Went out and bought a car that I couldn't afford, and I'm not I'm not exaggerating. They fired yeah. the president of MGM within two weeks, and they told me they weren't paying me. I was on page 27 when this happened. Okay, the arbitration, go to the Writers Guild, I get a couple of bucks, whatever. I actually sold the fucking car <laughs> and went back to my old car. 30 years later, one of the producers, Howard Baldwin, I don't know if you ever come in touch with Howard mm -hmm. Baldwin. He's one of the founders of uh, the AHA. He used to own the Hartford Whalers and the, and the Pittsburgh Penguins and a great guy. He brings this back up. Like Mad Men, probably my favorite drama of all time. And he tells me he wants to do a story about the founding of the WHA. And I said, no, let's go back to the ABA. Let's do it like Mad Men. Let's set this in a time of, you know, how this changed sports business, which was, you know, the 30 for 30 I did was a lot of that stuff. How the Knicks of that time, first black and white team to really play together and the style that Clyde Frazier brought to the to the world and then how sports business changed. Those Knicks games weren't even on live television. They were played on tape delay. Right. So I was like, the ABA, we could really do something amazing with that story. So I'm like, I can't write it. I don't even want to think about the research of it. I don't even want to debate that. Let's go get Terry Winter, who's who I tried. And I sent him loose balls, and I sent him a doc, and I sent him this thing. And he said, like, I love this. Give me till Monday. And for whatever happened by Monday, he said it was too similar to vinyl in some way, and he didn't uh. want to do it. So for the last five years, I'm still been with no, nobody pays, nobody does anything. I've still been obsessed with this, and we've hired a couple of writers. None of them have worked out. And I still know, you know, the only thing that's even been close, the Will Ferrell thing, which was not right. real. Right. To me, there is a real movie, I mean, a real television show set in that time and, and talking about that. So that, if you actually find that you can actually write screenplays, because you're writing one now, that is something we need to find a writer who loves research and wants to go in the way Matthew Weiner, Weiner however you pronounce it, did on Mad Men, which I thought, I don't know if you're a fan of that show, but was, are you, you've never seen it? <laughs> you know what? You should you should really watch know, it because it, it is it is genius, but it also, you know, one of the hardest things to do with a period piece is to really make people feel like you understand that time and that world so well. And I think the the sixties, seventies and the American Basketball Association that really made the NBA what it is today, I think is is an amazing timeline and an amazing show. So. I've had similar people talk to me about doing that exact thing, yeah. except with the USFL, which I wrote a book about, which mm -hmm. is the 80s and Trump buying this, you know, this team in the football league and blah, blah, blah. But I, I think mean, your time period is better, actually. You know, I think that 
could be a great show too. And it seems I, again, I think seems more North Trump. Dallas 40 yeah. than, than that. But I just think this was combining the civil rights with how sports changed culture yeah. and how the sports business went from what it was then to what it is now. You know, let me ask you a final question. Yeah. You don't have to name names. Give me your biggest Hollywood douchebag story. I got to laugh there from Dave. To be honest with you, I'm dealing with it right now. I mean, honestly, a friendship of 40 years, someone that I I brought on to work with me on something who decided uh, he was more important than everybody else. And and that's actually the worst and most disappointing. Though I did, you know, there's an Ari Gold book that I I wrote with some writers that's written by Ari Gold, you know? I remember this. I remember this. I swear to God. Okay. And I told the the first opening of it is a real story. So this was probably the, the biggest Hollywood douchebag. My father only knew one person in this entire town. So when I came out here, you know, we're the Jews. We're supposed to have all the connections. He only knew one guy. I think his name was Myron Roth, and he was a record executive, and uh, set a meeting with me for 8 a.m. in L.A., which I've I've written on Entourage lines about it because nobody has meetings in L.A. at 8 a.m., but I didn't know anything, and I bought, like, I had a suit that my mother purchased for me, and I went to this meeting, and I sat there from 8 to 11 uh, waiting for this guy, and when he finally got there, I walked in, and he said, so what do you want to do? And... Same way I was a dumb fuck, uh, like in that Mike DeLuca meeting. I said, uh, you know what? I don't really know yet. And he goes, well, why don't you call me when you do? And that was the end of the meeting. And I thought about killing him. <laughs> I thought about lots of things. And I also thought I'll never treat anybody like that ever, especially a kid, you know? So um, that, that, was, that was probably uh, the two right there. I just want to say, when I, first, I moved to California about eight years ago, and someone... Somehow, I had a meeting with Pete Berg's assistant. Mm-hmm. Do you know Pete Berg? Yep. Was he? He okay. was on Entourage. Right. I actually just remember. Love he was Pete. Yeah. Okay. Hopefully, it's, he's, hopefully, he wasn't. He didn't do anything wrong here. Yeah. But I go to Pete Berg's office, and uh, I was wearing flip flops because I have plantar fasciitis in my foot, so I wear these special shoes. Yeah. Whatever. I get there. I meet with his assistant. His assistant's younger than me, and he's like, uh, "We're meeting," and he's like, "Let me give you two. He goes, "Where do you live?" I said, "Well, I live in Orange County." Why would anyone live in Orange County? Like, why the fuck would you live in Orange County? Blah, blah, blah. Then he goes, I'm about to leave. He goes, let me give you some advice. Never wear flip-flops to a meeting. (laughs) And this guy's like, I was probably 40. This guy's probably 28. And I'm like, you fucking douchebag. What does that have to do with anything? You know what? Listen, there are so many. People go, is it Hollywood? It's Wall Street. It's everywhere. There's just douchebags everywhere, you know? And um, Don't you just want to be a nice guy in this world, though? I personally do. And, uh, you know, I'm sure there's a story about me somewhere that claims I'm a douchebag. But to be honest with you, I've tried to be as good as I can to as many people as I can. So I just want you to know, final thing. I have my tw- I have a blue check on Twitter, as do you. I didn't have one. Then someone started a fake Jeff Perlman account <laughs> that said Jeff Perlman is a cackling douchebag. And I reached out to Twitter and said someone started a fake account. So because of a douchebag pretending to be me as a douchebag, I got a blue check. There was Doug Ellen's assistant. (laughs) Doug Ellen's assistant had a Twitter account. Okay. That they just, it was, Connolly thinks it's like the funniest thing ever. I don't know if it still exists, but they would just write like really stupid bro stuff. Uh I went out last night to the club and X. Like it was just really stupid shit. So I had that. And then I I had another person, which was a little more creepy. And I actually think I knew it was, but they used to walk around calling actresses and saying they were me and they were going to put them on the show and then it would devolve into something else and, and our office would start getting calls that uh, someone's calling around. So I had a, a, an impersonator, which... That of, was me, actually. <laughs> I just wanted to, I wanted to come here and make Thank good. you for coming clean. Yeah. I appreciate it. Um, well, thanks for having me up here. Yep. And thank you for doing it. I'm a huge admirer. I really am. Thank and, you. And, and I am as well. So thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. I want to thank today's guest, Doug Ellen, for joining me on Two Riders Slinging Yang. You can follow Doug on Twitter and Instagram at Mr. Doug Ellen. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Slinging Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I don't make any money for doing this, and I rely on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep riding. <laughs>